Hello, everyone, and welcome to Geoversive's Earth Intelligence Podcast. I'm Don Shelby. Joining me as usual is Joseph Robertson, the Executive Director of Citizens Climate International and founder of Geoversive and the lead strategist for Climate Smart Finance Initiative. Our guest on today's program is Susan Joy Hassel. In my world, she is the foremost authority on communications theory and practice in the sphere of science with a concentration on climate change communication. You can find a lot more of her work at climatecommunication.org. Any attempt to do justice to her background will always fall short. But in brief, she is a climate change communicator, analyst, and author who's an expert in putting complex issues into plain, understandable language. And she coaches scientists to be better communicators. She was the senior science writer on three of the U.S.'s national climate assessments. She was elected as a fellow of the American Association for the Advancement of Science for her ability to create a science language that speaks to people who may have little science understanding. She served two terms on the board of directors of the American Geophysical Union and has been a visiting scholar at NOAA's Climate Data Center as well as NCAR, the National Center for Atmospheric Research. On top of those obligations, she is well-published in Scientific American, the Washington Post, and her work appears regularly in the New York Times, CNN, the Columbia Journalism Review, ABC's 2020 Frontline, and now on PBS. She wrote the award-winning HBO documentary on global warming called The Too Hot Not to Handle. In this episode, we're going to talk about communicating climate science, how scientists do it, and how you can do it, and a special segment on how to talk to your Uncle Frank, who believes it's all a bunch of hooey. Susan Joy, thanks for being with us. It's my pleasure, Don. You're all over the place in the internet, TED Talks, lectures to scientists at Woods Hole, among other places. And and so we are so honored to have you with us. Say hi to Joe Robertson. Hi, Joe. Hi, Susan Joy. Welcome. It's great to be with you. First question, Thanks. Susan Joy. Research by Yale and George Mason showed in 2012 that there were not just two schools of thought on climate change, but in fact, six Americas that span the concern of climate change from urgent to dismissive. What do the numbers tell us now? Well, what the numbers tell us is that we've made a lot of progress. And, of course, for those of us who have been banging our heads against this particular wall for decades, that's really good news. When they first started doing that survey, they found that the alarmed and the dismissive, the two groups on the farthest ends from each other were about the same size. But since then, in about a dozen years, the alarmed group has tripled in size and the dismissives are down to about 9%. So in fact, people are getting that climate change is a real real and present threat. And that's really good news. Is that because the science communication has increased? And I would expect you to say, yes, that has increased. But is it because people cannot escape the fact that they're seeing it before their very eyes? Yeah, I think it's probably due to a lot of things. And and one of them is certainly what you're talking about. This is no longer a theoretical problem. This is no longer dependent on modeling and projections of the future. We're seeing climate change play out and, you know, in our lives, in our backyards, on our TV screens and in our headlines. So the effect on extreme weather I think, is one that is very much in the forefront of why people are now understanding this. But also, the science has gotten better and stronger. The communication has gotten stronger. And so I think 
It's, it's all of those things. There is a big partisan gap, a big partisan divide on the issue of climate change, unfortunately, because this should not be a partisan issue. There are no Democratic or Republican thermometers. The climate is warming. It's a scientific fact that humans are the predominant cause is also a scientific fact. But we, we know that there's sort of a tribalism effect and that people are listening to those who they trust and with whom they share other kinds of cultural values. And that's that remains a big problem. In 1997, things changed dramatically. That was uh, happened to be the year of Kyoto, where science suddenly turned into policy. And that yeah. seems to be where the divide started. And I think your research shows that. It really did split out at around that time. Um, the, the divide got got much worse. So I think, yes, there was, we can't talk about this without talking about the fact that we are working to communicate this against a very strong headwind. And that headwind is a massively organized and funded disinformation campaign. And that went into high gear around the time of the Kyoto Protocol. And people were told many things that weren't true. <laughs> and I, I really think that that the disinformation campaign funded largely by fossil fuel companies has been uh, a, a tremendous factor in, in the partisan divide and in our failure to get societal consensus on the fact that we really need to act on this. But I feel like that's finally changing. And I mean, we saw some events just this week that were really remarkable with um, court decisions against oil companies, with climate activists getting seats on the board of ExxonMobil. I mean, things are, things are changing and they're changing fast. Renewable energy is the fastest growing source of new energy coming online. It's really interesting to hear that we know that disinformation had a negative effect, created this tribal effect, but yet it's getting better. Yet people are understanding things. One of the things that we see is that um, Democrats are much more likely to accept the reality of human-caused climate change and to be very concerned about it and to want to take action. Among Republicans, though, the younger Republicans are much more concerned and much more interested and want to take action. It's the older Republicans who don't. There's a very large gap in the views on climate change between younger and older Republicans. Among Democrats, you don't see that gap. Both younger and older Democrats are, in both cases, very interested in taking action. So that's, one, that's at least one factor. Another factor is the one that was mentioned already by Don, that you can no longer deny it. Anyone who's been in the same place for 20 or 30 years feels the change in their own lives. More, more precipitation coming as rain than snow. Rain, when it comes, coming in heavier downpours and less of the light rain. Longer, hotter heat waves, longer, deeper droughts. Uh, wildfires like we've never seen them before. A wildfire season that's not even a season anymore. It's year-round in parts of the Southwest, and uh, especially in California. So we are living with climate change. It's no longer a problem for the future. It's here and now. But yet it seems like the older generation that still does not accept that this is happening or does not accept the human cause, they're missing something that the younger generation seems to understand, which is that there's an intergenerational issue. 
the generations that have shaped the world are leaving to younger generations and future generations a lot of damage and destruction and, and hardship, potentially. We used to talk about denial, but it seems like now people are just rejecting reality. It's like, it's like saying we don't need oxygen to breathe. How do you communicate in that environment? How do you communicate with someone who's willing to reject observable reality? It is quite difficult. Um, but here's what I find. If someone is really deeply, if it's deeply ingrained in them that this is a hoax and it's nonsense, then hitting them with more science is not going to be helpful. So what I do in that case is to try and find out, to try and understand what does this person or these people care about? And then to talk to them about how climate change is affecting the, the things that they care about. So and we have to find some common ground, right? So communication is good communication, is a conversation. It's not a monologue. So I want to listen to what, those, what they care about, what they value. And then I want to find some common ground. What do we both value? What do we both care about? Do we care about our children? Do we care about the future that we're leaving for our children? Do we want to leave them a problem that they can't solve? No one wants that. And, you know, do they like to fish? Well, let's talk about what's happening with cold water fish. Trout streams, we're finding that, you know, as the water gets warmer, the certain types of fish that have long lived in a stream can't live there anymore. It's changing fishing. It's changing hunting. It's changing winter sports from skiing to snowmobiling to ice fishing. And so I find something that we can agree on. And I'll give you one hint about one of the what one of those side doors. I call them side doors because if the, the front door is locked, I've learned from decades that banging my head against the locked front door is just going to give me a headache. So I look for a side door. One of the side doors that we know is really helpful is renewable clean energy. Everyone likes clean energy. Even people who don't accept the reality of human-caused climate change, they like clean energy. They like it for other reasons right? It gives us cleaner air, cleaner water. It's, it's renewable, right? It's not, we don't have to dig it out of the ground. We don't have to be dependent on a foreign country for it. And so, and you know, the atmosphere doesn't care what you believe. It simply responds to our emissions. So the atmosphere doesn't care if you don't believe in global warming. And I hate that term, believe in, like it's a religion that you can choose to believe in. There are lots of reasons to want clean energy, and whether or not you accept the reality of human-caused climate change, clean energy is a good thing, right? So I'll give you an example. The Kentucky Coal Museum covered its roof in solar panels. Why did they do that? Not because of climate change. They did it because it saved them $8,000 a year on their energy costs. So there are all these other benefits to many of the actions that we would take. And that's the kind of thing that I think... If somebody is really hard against accepting the reality of climate change, I kind of stop talking about that. And I start talking about all the great reasons why we should be adopting clean energy. And that gets us where we need to go, because the atmosphere is just going to respond to our emissions, not to our beliefs. When people consider climate change, they may have a view, it may be a belief system, that they accept uh, the science or they think it is not true. It's a hoax. 
But at the same time, more people might feel that it is true and accurate, as science is, until it comes to increasing the size of government and mandates and you're going to do things our way, which gets in the way of certain conservative beliefs of smaller government. How do you deal with members of Congress, for instance, who, not uniformly, but largely on one side of the political spectrum, are saying, we're not going to move at all on this issue from a policy perspective? Well, one thing we can do is we can change some of the language that we use to talk about this. It doesn't all have to be about regulation and restriction. There are market-based ways of addressing the climate challenge. Putting a price on carbon, for example, is a market-based way of getting us to reduce our emissions. Uh, Cap-and-trade systems or have worked, and they've worked in the U.S. on sulfur dioxide and other pollutants, and they could work for carbon dioxide as just as well. So there are market-based mechanisms which help you get the prices right, right? It, the, the market works well if you don't have distorted prices, but we right now have really distorted prices. Fossil fuels are artificially cheap because we've subsidized them and continue to subsidize them, and we de- we need to level that playing field and you know right now it's free to dump carbon dioxide into the atmosphere and it should be because we pay the cost of it we just don't pay it at the price we pay for gasoline at the pump or the kilowatt hours we pay for on our utility bill we pay for it in healthcare we pay for it in lots of other ways and so you know with the extreme events and the billion dollar disasters we pay for it we need to internalize those externalities into the price that we pay for fossil fuel generated energy. And that's what a carbon fee and dividend is all about. And so there are market-based ways to do this. And I think for people who are on the, say, on the right side of the political spectrum, those market-based mechanisms should be something that they could relate to. Um, Also, the costs. Well, when you look at the costs of doing something about this, You have to weigh them against the cost of not doing anything. So, yes, it's going to cost us something to act. It'll cost us much more if we don't act. Thank you, Susan Joy, for mentioning the cost of inaction, because we so often don't pay attention to that in our political discussions. And right now we're living through a major resilience failure. COVID has revealed how catastrophic those costs can be if we aren't prepared, if we don't take the right steps at the right time, and if effects compound and get worse. And when when we talk with uh, financial sector leaders about their desire to invest intelligently in the future, this is one of the things they point out. They don't feel that the political discussion that weighs the cost of action fully grasps that they're going to be unsustainable in the future. They're not going to be able to make money doing the things they know how. They're not going to have time to get to the things that will be the foundations for future prosperity. It's almost a math problem. There are people who don't understand the math, but it's also a communications problem. Um, Do you find that our political discourse is just lacking this understanding of the foundations of future value, the foundations of future prosperity? 
I think some people understand it, but many don't. I think, unfortunately, many of the oil companies just see themselves as oil companies, not energy companies. I wish they would see themselves as energy companies. They have a lot of the the know-how and the workforce to do many of the things that will need to be done in the future. So yes, I, I feel like there's there's a gap. Not everyone is getting this, but the ones who are, are doing well. I believe in putting my money where my mouth is, so I won't invest in in any companies that are involved with fossil fuels or any of that. So, you know, instead I've invested in renewable energy and other things, and my portfolio is doing quite nicely. Um, compared to people who have stayed in the with, in the traditional sectors. And so I do feel like there are some companies that are getting it, and we definitely need uh, for everyone to understand that. I mean, one of the things that's happened is that things have changed so fast that it's hard for people to keep up. Ten years ago, solar was expensive, and people still have it in their heads that solar is expensive. They don't understand that solar and wind are now cheaper than just the operating costs of a coal-fired power plant in almost every place in the U.S. So we need to educate people on the current reality of our energy system. Yeah, that that's fascinating because it, it seems like um, we can be critical of, of whether people accept or reject reality, but there's this other problem. Things are changing fast. And when people's values come into the question... Do they care about their grandchildren's future? Do they care about whether they can fish in the pond they know how to fish in? There's this other part of the future that's also being shaped, which is that money is moving. People are pulling out of these destructive practices. Does this require us to think about a different way of communicating the connection between politics and the future, not just the connection between climate and politics? It all comes back to values. You know, we, we always have to think about what it is we care about. And, you know, one of the things that's been so interesting in this sort of psychological research on, on some of these issues is that we find that among conservatives, they tend to really value the past. They tend to be more nostalgic, whereas progressives tend to, well, progress is right in the name. They, they tend to think more about a future that's better, a future that's different. And so even that, though, is something that you can use in your communications if you understand that. Because if you're speaking to conservatives, you can ask, don't you want your children to have the same benefits that you had, to have the same opportunities to enjoy nature and to be able to fish and to be able to ski and do the things that you loved and enjoy the world the way it was? and not the world that we're creating with human-caused climate change. So you can, if you understand some of these things about the way people think and what they value, it can be really helpful in communicating to them about what we need to do. You know, I just, Susan Joy, listening to you, I just had a moment of clarity, um, a bit of inspiration, uh, because that connection, the idea that you might want things to be the way they've always been, but they can't be unless we make certain wise science-based choices. And so in that sense, for the staunch conservative to leave to their children and grandchildren a world that they cherish, they need 
progressives on their team who are pushing for a better climate future. Uh, because that's the only way we have something like what we had before, in a sense, right? Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, we can't turn back the clock on this. That's one thing we understand is that we're probably not going to get back the climate that we had. But what we can do, the choice that we have now is how much more climate change we will get. Are we going to get a little more that we can adapt to and deal with? Or are we going to have a global catastrophe? And that's really the choice we face right now. And the future is in our hands, which of those two roads we take and which way it goes. So we're not going to get the climate back we had 30 years ago, but we can stop the damage. We can stop the bleeding. We don't have to keep getting worse and worse, which is you know, really the, the path we're currently on. How do we best talk with our family members, people we love, people who've been with us our entire lives, but in this particular case, we cannot agree. We cannot be in the same room together if this subject comes up. How do we talk to them? Once again, I would talk about the multiple benefits of moving to a cleaner energy economy. Nobody likes dirty energy. Nobody likes dirty air, dirty water, cold slurry. No, nobody likes those things. Oil spills. Everybody likes clean energy. And they are coming to understand that those technologies have really come to fruition now, right? These are not just alternative energy. This is, this is reality. And there's so much more we can do. And I feel like that is very, very helpful to stop talking about the thing that we're arguing about, climate change, human cause, all of that stuff into the nitty gritty on the science, which they're going to want to argue with you. And they've been, you know, they've been reading on the internet, right? So they've got all their facts, you know, alternative facts. So you want to stay away from that because we're not going to get anywhere that way. Talk about all the benefits of a clean energy future and all of these wonderful things that we could have. And if you know, it makes our climate better. That's just a side benefit of all the other wonderful things it's going to do. Who doesn't want cleaner, healthier, more walkable communities? We send fewer kids to the hospital with asthma. We have our allergies are getting worse and worse and worse because the pollen season is out of control. I mean, there are so many things that have to do with our health, with our national security, with our food, our water, our energy system, our infrastructure all of these things. And so just getting away from the thing that we're arguing about and talking about, you know, changing the subject to all of these other benefits that we could reap if we change the way we produce energy. And nobody wants to be cutting down the world's forests either. And that's the other big contributor. And, you know, agriculture, there are some issues there. But what's bad about regenerative agriculture? Healthier soils, higher quality food. So I think that's a big part of it is just sort of changing the subject, making sure we're connecting on common ground, right? Because even this uncle that, you know, doesn't accept the reality of climate change, you have things in common with that uncle. You share certain values, focus on those values and how climate change is already affecting those things that we both care about. One of the things that I hope that we make clear in our messaging is that 
We're not starting from zero. We have to remake the world. We're in the process of remaking the world into a better place as a result of the forces of climate change. And so we're not starting at zero. I agree with you. I think that's extremely important. And we know this actually from psychological research. And I'll give you just a funny little story about how they did some of this research. So, you know, if you, uh, you know, like what a loyalty card is, if you go to a car wash and you get 10 car washes, you're going to get one free, right? So, so imagine that you have a loyalty card and you've got to get 10 punches to get one free. And the other card uh, has 12, but they're giving you two free. So of course, in both cases, you still need to get 10. But the people who have gotten the two free ones are much more likely to complete the task and get the free one. And it's because they don't feel like they're starting from scratch. They feel like they've got a head start. They're part of the way there. And so that's part of the reason behind why the messaging you're talking about is so important. People do need to understand that we are not starting from scratch. We are on our way. Most new electricity coming online in the past year is renewable. We are moving very quickly in getting clean energy on the grid. We are making progress. So this is what people need to understand. We are not starting from scratch. We are on our way. We have to do more and we have to do it faster. There is no question. We have to do as much as we can, as fast as we can. But we are not starting from scratch. So that is important. And it seems like a great economic argument for those individuals in business who might be conservatives to say, you have to get on board this train. It's leaving the station. And if you don't, other countries are going to take over dominance in these fields. Absolutely. That's an argument I make very often, in particular with conservative audiences. I say, look, the global energy, clean energy race is on. Right now, we're losing. The countries that are out in front, Germany, Denmark, Japan, China, they're, they're in the lead. Are we going to jump on? Are we going to jump into the race or are we just going to sit on the sidelines? And so I think that's a really important point that this, the companies and the countries that are early movers are going to do better and are going to capture the market. So I say to people, we're going to be using solar panels. The question is, do you want to be buying them from China or do you want to be selling them to China? Susan Joy Hassel, it's been a joy having you with us. And uh, if anybody wants to know more about that, go to climatecommunication.org and you can see an incredible amount of downloadable material from the climate assessments to graphs. You will just get great education at uh, Susan Joy's site at climatecommunication.org. And if you need to know more about what we're doing, you can go to geoversity.net. Or if you'd like to know more about these podcasts or what we do at Earth Intel, you can go to earthintel.org. Thank you very much, uh, Susan, for being with us. And thank you, Joe. Thank you very much out in our international listening audience. And we'll talk to you next time. <laughs>